Welcome back to Victor Voices, everyone. Sorry it's taken us a while to get this latest episode out. I promise you it's worth the wait. We're very excited to have our first external guest on the podcast today, Professor Gail Whiteman. She is a Professor of Sustainability and Business at the University of Exeter Business School. And her mission is essentially to bring climate science into the corporate boardroom and raise awareness around the climate crisis with business leaders around the world. She's also the founder of the Arctic Base Camp project at Davos World Economic Forum. And we had a great conversation about her work and research into Arctic climate change and how that's having a knock-on effect around the globe and the science behind that. We also talked about the importance of sustainability in business and what businesses should be focusing on moving forward to have the positive impact that we need in order to reverse the possibility of runaway climate change. It was a very, very interesting conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So welcome back to Victor Voices. Victor Voices. Victor Voices. Victor Voices. Victor Voices. Victor Voices. This is Victor Voices. Gail, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're really excited today. This is our first external guest for Victor Voices. It's Professor Gail Whiteman. Um, some of you may know her. If you don't, then you'll definitely know her by the end of this podcast. So, Gail, thank you very much for coming on and speaking to us. No, my pleasure, Dan. Great to be talking today. Well, we want to talk about everything you've done in the past, what you're doing in the future, um, and any. obviously we want to get into what you're doing with climate change and things, but just tell us a bit about yourself to begin with. Give the listeners a, a snapshot of what of Professor Gail Whiteman. That's <laughs> a little snapshot. Well, that's kind of fun. <laughs> so I am a professor of sustainability at the University of Exeter Business School. And what I try to do is bring in earth system science into the corporate boardroom. So I try to understand how top decision makers process environmental and social risk and how that narrative can be built into their decisions in a in a much more, I think, easier and, and also systemic way. So, so essentially what I do is bring all kinds of science, translate it into board talk, and then see, you know, how, how do boards and, and senior executives uh, respond? Sounds easy. <laughs> it's very easy. <laughs> uh, how did you get into this then? Is it something you've done for your whole career or has sustainability been something you got into later on? Well, you know, I think it's kind of interesting um, to think about where, where you end up and, and where you started. I actually started off in the private sector in Toronto. I'm a Canadian uh, originally. And I worked in marketing and advertising, for, especially for fast-moving consumer packaged goods, but then many other different brands and, and, and financial services, et cetera. And I was worried about the impact. And this would be the, the, you know, the early 90s, mid-90s. And I was worried about the fact that all these great people in business were doing all these wonderful things, but that you know, social and especially environmental problems were really starting to come to the foreground. And of course, that was the unintended, unintended consequence of a lot of uh, my peers and, and myself. So yeah. I decided that, that what I would do is I would go back and do a PhD and really try to understand what were the pressures from um, a, a planetary perspective and then figuring out how I could mobilize or help mobilize um, uh, business operations to do things differently and do things better. So that's been the the, the sort of the the, the the overall red thread. But along the way, I've done a lot of different things. And I actually did my PhD in the subarctic 
where I looked at the impacts of very large uh, energy systems, new energy systems on local people, indigenous people. So I, I lived with, um, yeah, the James Bay Cree for two years uh, in the 90s wow. to try and understand how they were managing uh, from inside their ecosystem and how yeah. is that different than, say, what we would have been doing with a head office in Toronto or New York or Chicago. Yes, I heard that you have spent time researching in various exotic destinations what's that like was one of them the amazon and you've also spent time in the arctic both double ends of the spectrum yeah absolutely and yeah so i've done um a number of research trips in in the amazon um uh looking at some of some similar things in terms of natural resource development uh impact of uh on local people impact on local ecosystems um and 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 then of course in the arctic and the subarctic region uh of uh, of especially north america and i mean yeah. you know it's it's it i mean it's it, it's very national geographic in many ways i mean it's fascinating to be able to see yeah, must be. uh these big big eco regions and and to be in the middle of them and then see you know how they're being affected by our way of life which you know as a as a a manager in toronto i i wouldn't have really understood from that locale but by going to these places and understanding things in a more um i think uh direct way really opened my eyes to a lot of the things that weren't just coming in on our spreadsheets yeah definitely and I've, i actually watched your ted talk which was um talking a lot about when you actually see these things in person it changes your whole perspective of the seriousness of the problem and how our disconnection with nature is a big problem, trying to then understand the crisis that's in front of us uh, because we just can't relate on that level. So, yeah. I mean, and I, so you, I think, so I think, so Dan, I think it's two things. I mean, I think there's this disconnection um, biophysically and, and emotionally and cognitively. And it also means that we are not collecting data or environmental intelligence to bring into our decision-making frameworks because we're just not connected. So we are assuming yeah. that the Earth system is stable, and it has been for a long ten thousand years. Yeah. It's not. It's not now. So that's the vulnerability, and that's the issue. Uh, you know where risk creeps in, uh, and we hadn't expected it. Yeah. Well, I'm really interested to hear all the details of this as we get into it. But wanted to start. You're well known by a lot of people, I'm sure, for being the founder of Arctic Base Camp at Davos. And I'm assuming that that has part of the reason for setting that up is to try and bring that connection back to these people that are making decisions. So tell us a bit. How did you come up with Arctic Base Camp, and how what's the impact it's had so far? Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for that. So Arctic Base Camp is a not-for-profit um, science solution platform where we try to take uh, speak science to power. So we take uh, scientific knowledge, often natural science knowledge and economics, into those places where they're not necessarily looking at, at, at that, especially the environmental risk, in the, yeah. the degree that we think they should. So how that started, though, was I was invited to do a research trip in the Canadian Arctic through the Northwest Passage. And I went with um, a Canadian CEO uh, from the, in that time, telecommunications space. And, right. you know, what we could see was in 2010, the massive sea ice melt. And the concern, of course, that's a, a you know, a, a physical uh, representation of, of climate change. 
And, and it just wasn't being talked about in the areas, that, and I was working in Europe, in the, the business sectors, even those that were really interested in on sustainability, people weren't really focused on what was going on in the Arctic. So there was the idea that that was bad news for the polar bear or for local people, uh, maybe yeah. good news for shipping uh, and oil and gas extraction. But the rest, you know, if you were the CEO of a, a food company, you weren't paying attention um, necessarily at all, except to say, yeah. well, you know, maybe that's concerning. And and so I was tasked, uh, you know, the sort of the, the, the gauntlet was thrown down. Could I try to get the Arctic into the discussions of other types of, uh, of, of corporate executives and uh, really sort of wake up the world, the business world and the finance world to the fact that what was happening in the Arctic would affect the way we actually were going to be living our life around the world. So what happens yeah. in the Arctic doesn't stay there. Um, the Arctic is such a big place and the, the sea ice and the glaciers, especially Greenland, uh, but the, also the massive white sea ice uh, is, it a, is our insurance policy. It's the albedo effect. It's the white that bounces the sunlight back up. And it's a big insurance policy right, on, run, yeah. on runaway climate change. And mm -hmm. as we lose that, which we are absolutely losing that rapidly and, and in an escalating way, that means that we are so much more vulnerable to runaway climate change. On top of that, just the loss of the sea ice changes the weather patterns around the world. So extreme weather in the mid-latitudes is, 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 is linked to Arctic melt. And, and that's, that is completely unknown. So if you're looking at the fires kicking off in California again right now, that mm. has something to do with Arctic summer sea ice being lost uh, over the last few decades. And that conversation wasn't happening. So I said, okay, if we're going to talk about global risk, we've got to start getting some economics on the table. And then my team did uh, economic modeling to say, what's the price of losing Arctic summer sea ice and what's the price of losing a, a permafrost thaw in, 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 in the area. And, and what are we going to do with that? Well, we publish it at a very high uh, level. Of course, we've got a paper in nature communications, but more importantly for me and drawing on my business experience was we have to communicate this to an audience that can make a difference. And I said, if yeah. we're talking about and global in their risk, language and in their language. So if we're talking about global risk, we have to be at Davos because that's where you know, world leaders and senior executives meet to discuss global risk. So let's go. Uh, easier said than done. The devil, yeah, I was going to say, it's not exactly a small task. <laughs> no, and, uh, you know, and so we came up with that idea, or I came up with that idea at the very beginning of 2011, when I was at a conference in the Arctic at the same time that, that WEF was talking about, World Economic Forum was talking about the Arab Spring. And the scientists were talking about global risk and tipping points, and that was completely disconnected to, to what was going on in the World Economic Forum. And I said, the penny dropped for me. And I said, we shouldn't be having our meetings in the Arctic. We should be there. It took yeah. from that moment until 2017 to actually be able to do the first Arctic base camp. So again, uh, you know, a relentless pursuit of a, of, of a vision sometimes pays off. Well, you're clearly passionate because obviously to see that through and, and to keep seeing it through is it's not easy to constantly get up every day and, and keep fighting that fight. So it's very impressive and admirable that you're doing that. Uh, has it had the impact that you've hoped for so far or is it a slow burner? What 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 kind of have you had any results from Arctic Base Camp to date? Yeah. That so you're the, proud of? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing was we wanted to change the narrative that the changing Arctic was about shipping and oil and gas exploration. 
So increased shipping. I mean, certainly it has that element to it, although there's a lot of risks associated with both of those things in terms of climate change. Um, But what we wanted to, to position was the Arctic was a barometer of global risk on climate change. And I think over the four years we've done Davos, we have achieved that, at least with that audience. And I've got sort of uh, two ways of looking at those. What would be the metrics? So I'm biased, of course, you know, it's my baby. But but I think the first one is that we can see how the World Economic Forum itself has embraced this framing of risk. Uh, We have written, oh, gosh, I don't even remember how how many blogs for uh, uh, the forum now, but uh, 10 probably, um, you know, they all, they have a spotlight on the Arctic now, especially on climate change stuff. Um, I was invited into, uh, the, the main Congress this year to do a science keynote on the Arctic as a barometer of global risk, uh, together with a panel with, um, the prime minister of Finland, uh, Sanamaran, who's phenomenal, Al Gore, uh, and, and, and moderated by the wall street journal. Uh, so I think that we can see that that shifting and 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 what we're seeing is that the idea that the Arctic is changing and that that shows us how bad climate change is right now, I think yeah. with the, with this target audience has shifted. We haven't reached everybody, but we've certainly reached a number of them. Uh, and davos is the is the place is the place to do that. And they're paying attention now, not just kind of poo-pooing it as something they don't need to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, to give the forum its due, it has uh, had a, a, over the last five years, uh, um, maybe starting at slightly earlier than that, but certainly in the last five years, the issue of climate change has ratcheted up their agenda. And that's because obviously it is important. If you look at the global risk report that, that the World Economic Forum does every year, you know, the, the top five risks are all environmentally focused and related largely to climate change. So so from that perspective, they have done a ton of stuff and they've got some amazing people inside the forum that have been pushing this actively and very successfully. I think what we're trying to do is to say that the Arctic is really um, warming so much faster than the rest of the planet and that the impacts, especially things like extreme weather, people just didn't know that that was, especially in the mid-latitudes, was related to Arctic change. They thought it was just yeah. climate change, but it's actually related more specifically to the changing Arctic. And, and I think that that realization is, is, is growing within this, this, this target audience. Interesting. Well, obviously, the big, before the lockdown happened, the big topic in the media was climate change. And a lot of everyone was following Greta's campaign. And I'm assuming you know Greta well, from Arctic Base Camp. Yeah, Greta camped with us in 2019 at the World Economic Forum. So when she made her first appearance at, uh, at, at Davos, she had camped overnight with us. Because a key part of what we do is we actually camp outside in our science tent in yeah. Davos. So we're not in the luxury hotels. We're we're camping outside in the in, in the cold. And when Greta camped with us, it was minus 24. So it was a it was wow. just a freezer. Yeah. So, yes, that we do. Is. We do know. We do know Greta. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that cold. Oh, it was. Yeah. That year it was. Mm-hmm. And what, what Greta's obviously in, interesting her campaign because she obviously gets a lot of positive attention. She gets some negative attention too. But what what do you think? Do you think the negative attention is warranted in any way? Because I, from what I see, I just see someone who is very passionate about what they believe in, and they're just 
getting their message out there. And, but there's some people who seem to think otherwise. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that um, you know she's a remarkable um, uh, young leader who has brought climate change and uh, right to the forefront again, uh, and mobilized a, a whole youth movement that was not mobilized before she had yeah. done that. And and I think that has been a tremendous, tremendous success. Uh, the pushback she gets, uh, you know, people always, it, once they're a celebrity, which if she would be, she might not like the name celebrity, but she's one yeah. of the best known people in the planet now. So she so is, yeah. certainly has that, that fame, let's say, fame status. Uh, there's always people that will push back for a variety of reasons. Some of the pushback she gets is because there's vested interests that understand she is a threat. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and so in that sense, they take her seriously and try to marginalize her voice. I do think that she's been always very cautious uh, about coming up with solutions. And the mm. bulk of her campaign is about listen to the science. So yeah. she's not saying, I know the five things that have to be done, except for things like getting out of fossil fuels, reducing emissions. But those are the science messages that she is embracing. And those are very robust messaging. So I think I think that it's unwarranted uh, in terms of the of the pushback. And, you know, she is a supporter of the science. And I think and together, actually, with Christiana Figueres, who is the former executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and also a, a one of the main architects of the Paris Agreement in 2015, her Christiana and Greta launched the Unite Behind the Science campaign with Arctic Base Camp in Davos, which is, you know, if we're going to make these big decisions and, and both respond to what's happening now and prevent disaster in the future, we need to have that as uh, have a scientific basis of that. This is this is bipartisan. This is not a this is not about preference politically. It's really about um, survival. And, and I think there's a scientific uh, grounding to that. Um, there's lots of debate about what the solutions may be. Um, uh, but the, certainly the, the, the need for those solutions is really, really robust from a science perspective. So I think the pushback from Greta, it, it can come from, you know, jealousy, but also can come from, um, uh, you know, fear. fear and a very well-funded lobbying uh, group that has been propping up the fossil fuel industry for a long time. So she's, cl she's clearly, clearly a, a threat. Mm, interesting, interesting. Well, yeah, so the, the climate change theme in the media was big and then lockdown happened. Obviously, lockdown's the big topic now uh, for various different reasons. But one, I'm, I personally wonder whether the two are interlinked now because the, the lockdown obviously had a significant impact on a reduction in emissions, if I'm not mistaken. Do you have any kind of data on that point? Because the, the world stopped flying pretty much. Barbara, yes. cargo and things like that. Yeah, so I think so I think that the the, the latest data that's out um, is that the emissions this year look to be globally about uh, a decrease of four percent, um, which seems tiny, um, but is one of the first times we've ever had a reduction. Uh, except yeah. there was a there is a, a a minor, much less reduction uh, when there was the economic crisis in two thousand and eight. Uh, and then there was a flattening um, in in uh, uh, 
2017, 2018. And then it's been a constant rise, which is concerning because we're trying to half emissions globally by 2030, and that's the wrong yeah. trajectory. So that has bought us a little bit of time. Um, it has, uh, although we see in, uh, instances where the rebound factor in 2008, there was a, a, even more um, emissions uh, in terms of rebound. And we see that there's some uh, indication that, that um, those emissions have grown significantly in places like China. But we yeah. have bought a tiny bit of time, and that's, that's good news. I think more importantly, though, is that we, the impossible has happened. And what I mean is the impossible is not the pandemic because medical science said that would happen. Yeah. Governments around the world were briefed extensively on an ongoing basis that this could happen. They had scenarios. They just didn't listen to them. They didn't believe the medical science. That this Similar to what's going on with climate change. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> so it's not impossible that the pandemic happened. It's, it's, that, it's that we were forced to wake up to the reality and then we shut down the economy in many, many countries around the world, most countries. So that was impossible in terms of world leaders put humanity above the economy. And that is the first time I have ever seen that in my lifetime. And that was impossible. Everybody said, we can't shut down the economy. We can't, we can't. Well, actually, when yeah, we face an existential threat, boy, we, we really can. And, and we can get huge public support for, for, for doing that. So. So there is this idea that that it's a new game because we've seen completely different ways of of, of looking. I've done a series of conversations with uh, senior executive and board members on what they think are their lessons from lockdowns, and what's been really illuminating is that is that now I'm talking to a, a subgroup that, of course, have been working on sustainability topics, right. but the the commitment to dealing with the next crisis, which is both climate change and biodiversity loss, has grown, yeah. has grown over the lockdown, despite the fact really? that all the firms, yeah, it's grown. It's, it's, it's like a big wake up call, like, oh, my God, the science is real. It's happening. And it will be so expensive and difficult if we don't prevent this or reduce the impact of these crises that are coming, that we know are coming. So it has been the, the renewed energy of actually going farther and faster on the low carbon economy has been incredibly, incredibly encouraging. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the impossible because I actually had a question I wanted to ask you. Similar sentiment is that if you'd have asked people whether they could just stop people flying around in February this year or earlier, they would have said that's impossible. We can't just shut the air. But we seen, as you said, they had to put humanity above the economy. They locked everything down. All the planes were on the ground. Uh, we felt it, particularly being in private aviation. And it was the, the impossible became possible. And I was wondering whether you think that's almost a precursor for events to come if we can't stunt the climate change crisis. You know, we've shown now that we can take drastic action if we need to. What do you think? that says for the future if we can't quite get a, ahead of this this problem that we're facing? Well, I think the impact of COVID has been, of course, filled with uh, human tragedy um, and economic um, uh, stress, but it is a fraction of what 
we will experience as a human race if we have runaway climate change. Mm. And the trajectory we are on is leading us to runaway climate change. The science is robust on that. Even with a 4% decrease this year, we are happily, actively moving towards catastrophe. And the impact of that will be much larger than what we've seen with COVID. And I say that because when we have runaway climate change, we have such existential threats to our food and water security. We have massive, massive amounts of human migration, which leads to conflict. We have um, uh, uh, extreme weather happening so frequently that we cannot rebuild. And things that are coastal, which is most of our cities and infrastructure, are under incredible stress. So it, it affects everything that we that we do. And the difference is the pandemic is a warm-up call, but a pandemic will naturally solve itself to some degree. Yeah. Right? Climate change will just keep getting worse and worse and worse. So it's it's like getting hit by wave after wave after wave after wave. And and that's not yeah. There's no immune system for no. the climate. There's no crisis. herd immunity. There's no herd immunity for the climate crisis. And you can't buy your way out of this. You know, you can't, even if you're of the privileged uh, class, you can't really protect yourself enough from this um, because it just permeates everywhere. And I think when we really take a look at, at extreme weather and impacts on food and water, and then infrastructure from storm surges or fires, et cetera, we can just see that it makes so much more sense, both from a human moral perspective, but also an economic perspective to rapidly move to the low carbon economy and try and have as much of our cake as we can. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that leads us nicely then into talking about sustainability and how how we progress, because one of your expertise, as you said, is is sustainability in business. Victor has a carbon offset program that you actually were involved with setting up, if I'm right. Um, so I'd be really interested to hear, because if I'm speaking as a, as a neutral uh, person who I believe in the climate crisis, personally, I think the science checks out. I'm, I'm not scientific by any means, but what I hear, I understand. But if I'm being completely honest with myself, I still don't feel that connection to act um, in the at the level that is required. And I think that that's probably something that's commonly felt. A lot of a lot of a lot of that being the reason, you know, we're not connected with it. We don't really get to see it. There's not there's no immediate urgency in front of us that's saying act now, act now, bar for the people who are telling us. So. There's a couple of things I'd like to hear your thoughts on. But what? Let's just start with what? What are the areas that businesses should be really focusing on in terms of sustainability to have a positive, to have an impact significant enough to help the cause as a as an immediate action? Yeah. So th- thanks for that, Dan. There's a lot of ways to answer that, but I think the first thing that I would say is that uh, companies that that want to ensure their own survival. Um, and also contribute to the survival of humanity, need to up their game in terms of knowledge on climate change. And I don't mean they need to become 
geeks or nerds like I am. What I mean is that they need to understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a specific you know type of personality. Um, but they need to understand what is the material risk to their organization from climate change and understand the risk of, of climate change to the rest of the societies in which they operate. And they need to understand yeah. that. And they need to, I'm not saying it's a, it's, it's climate 101 for dummies. I'm saying it's climate 101 for executives and yeah. they really need to understand that. And I've done a fair amount of that. And in fact, I, I did that with Victor jets, just trying to, 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 to really show like this, these are the physical constraints and the impacts that will happen if we cross those. And that's right. really sobering. That's really sobering um, to say we have to act faster than we are. If we had 200 years, I'd be very confident that um, the world economy would be low carbon compliant. Unfortunately, we don't have 200 years now. We have a decade to half emissions and we have till 2050 to get to net zero. And that still only gives us a 66% chance of preventing runaway climate change. So that's actually not super great odds if you put it into your own, uh, you know, those that was your trajectory for, say, cancer treatment, you'd be still kind of worried, right? It's not like it's a yeah. 95% chance. No, it's 66%. So you'd still be worried. And, and of course, science, we are. And we're we're pushing towards the as close to the 1.5 uh, Celsius warming target as as feasible. But we're we're fast getting to a point where that 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 1.8, we may have to go for, but as far below two degrees warmer as, as possible globally. So, so we have to, so, I mean, so I think, so I think collectively, um, and business and, 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 uh, key leaders need to get that and really understand that they don't, and they need to build sort of a, a information flows to those scientists that can update them as that constantly is updated on the best of our, our, our knowledge. And then I think they need to ask not only what do they need to do for their own company, but how can they be part of the big solution, the big transformation? And, you know, in some ways, this is a heroic moment for leaders everywhere. And if you're not prepared to stand up and be a hero, then you're on the side that's dragging us down because scientists, we can only we can only raise the alarm. We don't have the power and actually potentially the know how on how to make you know, big changes in the, the economic system of the world. But business leaders yeah. definitely do, and we need them. They know how to do things, right? So, I mean, that's one they're of the advantages. They're problem solvers. Yeah, they're problem yeah. solvers. And they say, let's go, let's do it. And that's what we, and that's what, it's all hands on deck. But I mean, I think clearly what we need is we need uh, business to be galvanized towards, towards that. And there are many companies that are, that are on that uh, uh, journey, but we need them to step up their game massively. And do you think if, it, in your opinion, is there still time, let's say the, the, the commitment to climate action accelerates significantly over the next 12 months, for example, and these business leaders do galvanize and they start to solve problems. Do you think there's still enough time to have a, an impact big enough to, to slow this thing down or is that still in question? Yeah, you know, so so um, there's definitely uh, still time. There's not a lot of time, especially given that a lot of investment decisions themselves take time, and and uh, we've got about a a, a ten year window, and that right. sounds like a lot, but it might be seven years, uh, and it might be eleven yeah. years. But I remember we don't being twenty. We don't have a lot of time. It wasn't that yeah. long ago? Yeah. No, no, exactly. <laughs> well, 
Yeah. So and specifically in in aviation, then obviously the 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 recurring and obvious theme is less flying, right? People should yep. fly less. Um, the other theme is that we need to figure out a way to fly or to use fuels that are less fossil fuel based. But if you, if you were speaking to aviation companies, not just private, but scheduled service, big airlines as well, where do you think the main things they need to focus on or what areas are those? Well, I mean, I think obviously they need to look at, at what are the innovations technologically um, in terms of having clean fuel. How, how is that going to happen? Because that needs to happen. But I think also from a systemic perspective, they need to stop thinking of themselves as an aviation company. I think they're a mobility company and they need to see themselves in that way. It's a little bit like, are you a, you know, a, um, a telegraph company or are you a communications company? Well, right. right? So, so it's, it, it's, it's about it's getting about, people from A to B. No, yeah. So what's your, yeah. So it's not, so, and obviously we do have a world set up for aviation, both in terms of business and, and, and pleasure. Um, but I think the industry itself is, is actually one on, on transportation and, and mobility. And, and, and I think then that, that frees up a lot of, a lot of uh, different ways of thinking. Um, with the lockdown, I've talked to execs that are now no longer prepared to fly to Singapore for a meeting from Amsterdam. They're just like, why, yeah. why would I do that? We all use Zoom. I've been using it for four months now. And yeah. it worked. Now, some conversations need to be in person, but maybe the scale of this constant moving back and forth will change. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. I mean, we're all itchy to to get somewhere else, uh, you know, see things as well from uh, from a leisure perspective. So yeah. I think so I think from that perspective, we need to to to, re, to see what's your role? What's the industry's role? And then I especially for the private aviation um, sector, you know, your users your your value chain in that sense are are the the rich and powerful largely yeah. right that's who you know high net worth individuals or corporate influencers or or celebrities they're influencers and and i think being able to have that conversation with other people that have power in different formats and see how they can be mobilized collectively to help solve this problem to me is, 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 is an interesting question and not everybody will want to, I mean, you know, there are some people that, that don't want to hear this, but I think more and more people are uncomfortable with putting their head in the sand, keeping their head in yeah. the sand. And the question is they don't know what to do. And I think that's the, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the creative conversation that can happen about, well, well, what could they do? Where do they have power and how can they help influence conversations. The big moment in time, of course, in the in in the next 18 months is COP26, which was supposed to happen this fall, but has been delayed, yeah. I think, for you know good reasons um, until the fall and gives governments time to work on those pledges. Um, and 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 seeing how the 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 the, the aviation, the mobility sector can contribute to COP26 and a, and a really radical transformation leading towards a low carbon economy. I mean, I think that's a, that, that's the, that's the lever point um, that, that, that I think is exciting. And if we can find a way of unlocking all that potential. Yeah. Well, if you mentioned about our clients being 
you know, ultra high net worth, they are the influencers. They are the people that have the power, have the money to do things, have the network to galvanize these groups together. But if we just talk about smaller steps of having an impact, Victor's carbon offset program was set up as a as a baby step, really, in the right direction of what needs to happen. When we have our conversations with clients, which we we tend to do quite regularly, we we are promoting that they Victor obviously offsets every flight on their behalf. We pay for the first two hundred percent, and we try to get the clients to increase their offset either by matching our contribution, or you can go they can pay for as many carbon credits as they want. We've had a variety of different responses. Some of them immediately are just say, yes, that's a great idea. Thank you very much. I'll match some say they'll match it or go beyond that. We've had people go up to a thousand percent offset uh, just buying more carbon credits. And then we've got some people that just don't see the value in it or they don't believe that it has an impact. And why should I spend that extra bit of money? And we're talking about really small amounts of money relatively to what the flight actually costs. And there's a couple of things. If I talk about my personal opinion on it, I think there's a lack of transparency in understanding where that money goes, how it's used. Yeah. The the actual figure doesn't correspond to me with the impact that it's apparently having. This small amount of money, you kind of think, how how can this small amount of money have any impact at all, considering I'm paying X amount for the flight? So. What what are your thoughts on carbon offsetting in general? Do you think it's it is black and white? It's having a positive impact, or do you think there's grey areas where we don't necessarily know where the money goes, how it's used, and how can we open up that industry so it's more transparent, which would hopefully connect with people and have them more interested to take part in it. Yeah, so I think I mean I think carbon offsetting um, as a concept. Um, is an interesting one in terms of a short-term trans, like a short-term step, right? Yeah. It, it 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 gets the the conversation of carbon and the price of carbon on the table, so that the externality is not a free one. The price is yeah. often far too low, and in fact, the price of carbon is far too too low, even in the European trading system. It's not a right. it's not a representative price in terms of the impact of climate change. So it looks like it's yeah. really cheap. Like how can you know thirty dollars or thirty pounds really make a difference on a short halt? Now, if it's a private jet, it's probably higher. But even still, it's proportionately very very small. And mm. and I th- also think that that it does depend on on the, the offsetting program. So so what is the offsetting program and what is the actual impact there? And a lot of questions have been raised and there's, you know, always the, there are definitely some programs that, that were probably less effective uh, in terms of making a difference. So the money is kind yeah. of wasted. Um, but I think that, that, and then I think that the, the third problem with carbon offsets would be that it just alleviates our eco guilt. So it's an eco sin to fly, I buy offsets, I feel better, job done. Of course, mm. we know, given except for the corona drop in emissions, we have increasingly uh, globally been increasing emissions despite the threat of climate change. Yeah. So offsetting's not doing enough. And maybe it, it, it actually counterbalances the idea that I'm a, it keeps me thinking I'm a good person when really what I should be doing is, is, is looking at my carbon 
um, my own carbon budget and trying to figure out how do I reduce my footprint just in yeah. gen- just in general. Now that being said, I think there are initiatives that that need financing, and I think you know at at, at Davos this year, the one trillion trees um, uh, initiative that was launched is a, is, a, is a really good one. Now, where are all those trees going to go and how fast can we get them? Uh, those questions need to be answered, uh, both scientifically and I think operationally. But there are initiatives out there that need funding that could make uh, uh, could make a difference. Um, you're always going to get, uh, in terms of your clients, you're always going to get at, at some part of your target audience. It's not really interested and they might be using the idea that we're concerned about the carbon um, offsetting validity as a way of just not caring. So you might yeah. want to have another option that that what they could do is just give a donation to uh, to a variety of you know one trillion trees. A project, for example. Yeah, a project. Yeah. So it's not a carbon offset. It's a it's a project that's that that's a you know a multi stakeholder driven project with you know, UN backing, World Economic Forum backing. I'm not involved in the One Trillion Trees uh, program myself, so I have no vested interest in that. But that was something that I thought had quite a lot of bipartisan um, support in Davos. And and then I think, so I think that there could be multiple options, but the big question really is how to reduce our footprint so that we're not just reducing it by 4% because of the pandemic, we are yeah. reducing it by 20%. And, and that is a sobering conversation that has to happen. And carbon mm. offsets lead us into opening the door, but they also say so there's a concern that they may, they, they may make us think that job done. The, yeah, the eco-guilt is a switch. A little bit superficial, um, and it makes you feel better than it actually should. But that being said, that being said, I think it's good for an uh, aviation company to actually acknowledge that there's a footprint and we've got to deal with it. So as opposed to pretending it doesn't happen or it's somebody else's problem, it's actually, you know, sort of owning up to it and saying, here's a, here's a solution. Um, It's, it's one step, but there's other things we need to do, but we are going to own this. And I think that to me was the interesting thing about doing carbon offsetting as a, a private aviation company. It was this idea that you've got to do pretty big offsetting and, um, you're owning up to a problem that that maybe your stakeholders aren't forcing you to, but just because as a company you felt, yeah, we, we we're not going to hide. It's time, yeah. Well, since since Victor launched its carbon offset program, regardless of whether the offsetting is having the impact that we hope it would, what we have seen is a lot of other aviation companies introduce their own carbon offset programs, right. which has had a domino effect on on the industry, which Absolutely. I like to think that we started in a, in a way. Um, we've certainly seen a, an increase with our immediate, um, the, the immediate companies that we deal with. We started to see the likes of VistaJet, who are a big global operation. They've started doing it now, which and oh, it's great. great. Obviously, we, we wanted people to copy what we were doing because it was all for the greater good. Um, the, the carbon offsets that the carbon credits that we purchase, they come from the most of them come from a company called Virtus and a company called South Pole, which are reducing emissions through deforestation and forest degradation. And that's obviously the, the flip side of the coin to the trillion trees yes. is whether 
planting the new trees obviously takes a lot of time to start sapping the carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Whereas not cutting them down in the first place. It's a, it's a huge amount of carbon that comes out of trees when you chop them down and use yeah, them, Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so so stopping deforestation is absolutely critical. And and I do know that South Pole's been very active in that space. So, I mean, I think that's 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 a that's a legitimate um legitimate direction. We have to stop deforestation. Well, in the last 12 months, I've got it here, we purchased 50,000 carbon credits. So, again, it's probably a very small <laughs> little fingerprint on the big problem, but we're we're trying our best to at least do something and create action in the industry and Obviously, you know, aviation is always going to be around. It employs 65 million people around the world. Um, it's got a massive contribution to global GDP, so it can't just go away. But we do need to get better at cleaning up after ourselves, as as Clive, our founder, says. Yeah, I, but, I, agree. Um, I agree with that. It, with What's interesting, I think, I'm coming back to an earlier point. We were talking about the science behind climate action and the climate crisis and it it is black and white as far as i can see but what how can there be people in your opinion how can there be people that question the science because there are people out there that you know i've spoken to clients myself who actively disagree that climate change is actually happening and a serious problem but the science is how can the science be disputed uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I mean, I think it's a, a lack of scientific literacy um, as as one of the drivers, um, a reliance on um, uh, climate denial uh, stories and myths that go around social media. A little bit like there was no moon landing. You know, it's these yeah. things are highly well produced. Um, you get intelligent people questioning that. And it's in, and it's the power of 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 these communication technologies that they they can happen. And I think what's interesting is that that in terms of um, it, there's been a study done by Avaz that has looked at climate denial videos on YouTube and on I think Facebook, but definitely it's YouTube. What kind of ads are in front of those? You know, there's the 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 pre-roll that goes in when you're watching a YouTube video. Yeah. And there is a, a large number of those that are actually um, environmental ads by Greenpeace, WWF, this kind of stuff, because they don't know where their ads are being placed and the algorithm places right. it. And the problem is, is, that, is that these things are appealing to people. Um, they're, they're backed, a lot of them are backed with quite a lot of money. And the people that produce them also get money from YouTube because of the number of views. So they get yeah. paid for this. So they, they, they make it, you know, maybe 75,000, but that's enough to do another video if they're small scale production and they're right. sort of riffing off this. So it's, a, it, it's, it's this, you know, it's this idea of where does knowledge spread and who are the experts? And I do think that one of the, the, the outcomes, the positive outcomes of the pandemic is, is that people are no longer saying, my cousin says on Facebook this about health issues. Yeah. People were starting to say, "Is what does what does what do the scientists say about the vaccine? We need the mm. vaccine." So this idea of the medical profession as having knowledge that was worthwhile has risen back up. So that sort of the the desire for scientifically backed knowledge is is a good idea. So that you don't want to think, "Oh, I should be injecting disinfectant into my veins as one way 
because somebody <laughs> says this on, you know, and it's passed around uh, social media. I mean, go ahead, but that's not probably a smart, smart thing to do. And I, and I think that, the, you know, that I think the social media companies, the Facebooks of the world uh, need to take responsibility that, that, you know, they need to have fact checking and they're starting to do that a bit more. They need to do a lot more because scientists, we don't have that kind of communication outreach. That's why we at least started with Arctic Base Camp to, to try and at least get us into these forums. Yeah. The other group that doesn't want to believe the science is because they have vested interests. Right. So they, they, they have, they have a strong, uh, vested interest in, 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 uh, in, in perpetuating business as usual. So right. they don't want the science uh, to be. So they're uh, trying to navigate the, the, um, the story basically. Yeah. And then I think, you know, and especially in the U S um, uh, 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 society, unfortunately, uh, things like climate change have become a politicized issue so that your beliefs, your political beliefs influence how much you believe climate science, which is ridiculous, which is just yeah, because ridiculous. You're, you're part of the tribe. So therefore, yeah. if, you, if, if you support that person, you have to support everything they say as well to fit in with the, the tribe. It, it's very much a polarized tribal culture, yeah. especially that's like you say. Yeah. So, so I think, so I think that there's, there's a lot of things. And I guess the conversation that I would suggest that you would have with some of your clients is, is that it, your job is not to convince them of the science, but if somehow the scientists have more direct conversations with those people, people change their minds. If you can because, get because, the- because they, they ask all these questions and science just answers, we just answer them. And yeah. Then, well, that's the thing. There is like, answers, right? No, sorry. That's dumb. And this is why. <laughs> And, and and it's kind of like, oh, and those conversations have to usually be at least under Chatham House rule because nobody wants to. Yeah, well, they have to be convinced, right? They have to. Yeah. Have and to it's just like, look, it. here's the science. And, and yeah. um, uh, you know, and, and do you believe your doctor when you go in um, and, 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 and they tell you about your, your, your blood pressure? No. Yeah. OK, that kind of person will never convince. It's there on the screen, you know. That's it. There you go. And, and we have, we, you know, and it's really compelling, you know, at Davos, we always bring, uh, you know, very old ice core samples to show how, and when you open these ice, if you crack them open, like 700 year old ice core samples of which science has many older ones, they're just too expensive. So we don't bring those, but if you bring a 700 year old ice core sample and you crack it open and you put it against your ear, you can hear the atmospheric gas from 700 years ago being released. It crackles, it pops. No yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like, oh, and, and if you're, you know. And that's happening on a serious scale as these yeah, things and, make down, basically. Well, but, but more importantly, that's where science can actually measure what was the atmosphere 700 years ago. Ah, right, I understand. So it's yeah. not like we're just imagining like, oh, what was it like? No, the people have really strong ways of getting that kind of data. That's, that's it's just measurement. Yeah. Know? So. Well, if you could. If you could get all of Victor's clients in an auditorium, for example, like a TED talk, what what would your message be to them? Because if they're again, they are the influencers. These are the people that you want to start moving and shaking. So what would you what would you say to our clients if you could get them all together? The believers yeah. and the non-believers. <laughs> yeah. So I would say I would I would emphasize that climate change is real. It's happening now at a scale much 
higher than most people know. The future trajectory is bad. The global risk coming from this will affect all of our lifestyles and economies and businesses. And we have a remarkable moment in time in the next few years where we can solve this. And I would say that they, especially as these powerful influencers, they have a unique opportunity to play a heroic role. And I would ask them to do so. Save the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, if that, if that didn't inspire them, I don't know what would. Well, what's on your agenda? I think that's, uh, we can wrap it up here, girl. But what's on your agenda at the moment? What are you working on? Anything interesting? Yeah, so a few things with Arctic Base Camp. We're looking at how in a COVID world, uh, we do virtual Arctic Base Camp. So we're figuring out how best to do that with our own uh, uh, group of influencers, including the youth movement like Greta, but also the celebrities that we're engaging with and the business leaders. Um, and and we are also um, trying to get uh, core funding support so that we can do what we do best on an ongoing basis. Because the scientists, we're all volunteers doing this, which yeah. means we have full-time jobs doing science, which means there's only so much that we can do. But mm -hmm. seeing the success of what we've done with no resources uh, and and um, uh, just uh, you know ingenuity and 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 sort of relentless focus, I think that what we could do with with some some core funding is just go so much farther and just really make sure that that scientific message is in the places it needs to be because that's what we do there you go well if there's any of our clients listen to this and you're a believer you get your wallet out and contact gail <laughs> absolutely well we like to finish the podcast girl with just some, some quest questions for the listeners um a couple of things they can go away and and have a look at themselves so we've been asking our guests for their favorite book or a book that you really enjoyed be that fiction or non-fiction uh, something that you can watch something you can listen to and also your favorite quote or inspirational quote. So what, what book would you recommend for our listeners to go away and have a read of maybe something climate change related? Well, so two things. So Christiana Figueres and Tom Karnak have a great new book on climate change that was out this year. Um, and I think, and they also have a podcast that goes along with that. So oh, that great. would be a great start the podcasts are good because they're obviously shorter and you can listen to them when you want yeah. so that would be a great way of coming up to speed about what's the optimistic route forward and where can they then make a difference but i'd also suggest and i was thinking about this uh, earlier today you know if i want to go get some inspiration i often you know i go to books like you know harper lee's to kill a mockingbird right. which is first of all just a perfect book it's short but it also always inspired me to think about how can I, in our ordinary life, we engage with our own values and somehow stand up and talk about injustice or things that need to change. Mm. So, and To Kill a Mockingbird is sort of a classic example of that. And I know there's been pushback now more recently on, on the, the, you know, the, the sort of cultural framing of that book, which I think is valid. But I still think that this idea of To Kill a Mockingbird from a child's perspective, looking on, on racial injustice and standing up somehow uh, with her lawyer father is, is compelling because that's what we need to do. We need to dig deep um, and get a bit of courage 
uh, to be bold. Yeah. And to rock the boat a little bit amongst our peer group so Mm -hmm. that it's a bit more uncomfortable. And, and, and I think we do that because, um, we know what's right deep, deep down. Brilliant. So and what, yeah, and what word did you have another question? Was I so, supposed to say something? Yes, yeah, so something to watch. What would you recommend that the listeners watch? Oh my gosh! So I would have to say, and this is this, I would have to say, watch as much comedy as you can. Because, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> because whether that's Saturday Night Live or you know comedy on movies or just you know you know Seinfeld's you know comedians in cars having coffee, I just have have some laughter because. As a scientist, I work in doom and gloom, and and you can get bogged down in that. And I think as you start your trajectory on climate action, it's easy to get overwhelmed, even for your clients who are hugely powerful. Yeah. And I think what we need to do is is laugh a little bit and and get our energy back, um, and and then we can keep going. Great answer. And to finish it off, because you mentioned the podcast already, what was the name of the podcast actually? I I think it's called Global Optimism. Global Optimism, and. Finally, your favorite quote or an inspirational quote. Maybe it's one you want to give give the listeners from yourself. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, that's that's gosh, that is the hardest of all questions. I mean, there's a million quotes out there that that are all really inspirational, and and I think the thing. So, you know, you could talk about you know Maya Angelou on courage or Winston Churchill on courage. Yes. Your listeners will have heard all of these. I would just have to say, dig deep and rise up and go beyond what you ever thought was possible to help us solve the biggest problem humanity has ever faced. I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Gail Whiteman, for coming on Victor Voices. Uh, We really appreciate your time, and it's been a really great conversation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, so thank you very much. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you very much for listening to Victor Voices, everyone. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Professor Gail Whiteman, for being on the podcast. We are very much looking forward to getting another episode out to you. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, whether that's on Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify. You can also listen to the podcasts that we've done in the past on our website, www.flyvictor.com slash victor voices. And if you would like to recommend a topic that we talk about, please feel free to go to the webpage and submit that on the topic box, which is there. We'd love to hear your thoughts and obviously we'll try to get that done. But thank you again for listening and we will see you on the next episode of Victor Voices.